0: Hello, welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. My name is Kimberly Trung, and uh, I'm getting back into Take That. If anybody remembers that British boy band from back in the day, I'm getting back into Take That. So, you're welcome. To my virtual right, I have the lovely Doug Amith.
1: So, Kim, hi, everyone. Um, Last week, you were so excited to tell everyone that you were listening to John Cicada that I noticed you you actually forgot to introduce yourself. So I'm glad you did that this time because you're an important (laughs) part of this team and I consider you a friend. So good job this week for introducing yourself. And it sounds like John Cicada is a thing of the past in your life now.
0: No, I mean, yeah, he's still on the old playlist, but um, he's that powerful. He made me forget to introduce myself. To my virtual left, I have the super smart Paul Ducklin.
2: I heard the words, take that, and I was just boggling a little bit. I got to check him out.
0: <laughs> They've got some bangers.
2: <laughs> Not quite my teens of choice not at any time in my life
0: I'm sure someone listening will appreciate my my random music um, recommendations someone somewhere
2: like I've said before I'm more into I'm more into indie bands trying and listen to <laughs> bands try, you're know, trying to listen to bands that have only have only released albums that they kind of made themselves
1: he's more of a cicada man sounds like
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway moving on Doug what do we have in the headlines today
1: on the dark web another one bites the dust. I'm excited to talk about that one. Uh, We've got some homeschooling tips to talk about, and we're going to apply them to general digital life, and then we're going to talk about browser scrapers. But first, fun fact, a jiffy is an actual measurement of time. It is 10 milliseconds. So if you tell someone you'll be back in a jiffy, you better better hurry. (laughs) It's also used in physics to denote how long it takes light to travel a single centimeter.
2: Mm. and let me tell you it's a little bit less than 10 milliseconds
0: now's a good time for me to tease the oh no of the week and uh, again stick around to the end of the episode to hear the oh no of the week but all I'm going to say is usually the most obvious answer is the correct answer so stick around it's a very funny story I laughed out loud reading this one uh, earlier today so For our first story, Europol announces bust of quote-unquote world's biggest dark web marketplace and replacing its online content with a warning page. The operation required many different law enforcement teams from Germany, Australia, Denmark, Moldova, Ukraine, the UK, and the USA. According to Europol, the servers that were taken down were located in Moldova and Ukraine. Additionally, the man alleged to have operated the service was an Australian citizen who was arrested in Germany close to the Danish border duck what was going on with this site and how did this all come to be
2: my understanding is that uh from the europol uh, notice is that the main stuff that they were known for included uh recreation, illegal recreational drugs which is probably what the dark web is best known for uh counterfeit stuff like fraudulent IDs for example and uh, malware so you could go there to you know if you, if you needed some malware written you could go there and buy it you know that the whole idea is that uh, most dark websites these days use the Tor network. Tor is short for the Onion Router, and the idea of Tor is the servers you go to that are inside the Tor network have server names that end .onion, and .onion names are not they're not regular server names, so you can't look them up in DNS. You can't get an IP number for them you can connect into the network and a server inside the Tor network can sort of connect into Tor and the Tor network anonymously kind of brings the two of you together. So given that this is supposed to make you anonymous, meaning that it's hard to track who visited these sites, but more importantly for law enforcement, where the sites actually are in the first place in order to identify them and take them down with or without seizing them, the theory is, well, no one should ever be able to take them down, and yet, as we have seen through the number of busts over the years of dark websites, the anonymity provided by the tool network only goes so far. Do we
1: know how this one was busted? So you make allusions to when Silk Road went offline. If memory serves, that, went, that got taken down because Ross Ulbricht logged in to do some administrative stuff from a coffee shop once.
2: I think it was a public library, actually. Um, <laughs> oh, if I remember the story wow. correctly, basically they'd kind of figured out they, they'd figured out who it might be, and and law enforcement, if you like. I, I was going to say they got lucky. Of course, it's one of those things like like the the famous golfer Gary Player used to say: "The more I practice, the luckier I get." And so you know, it was <laughs> it was just knowing where to look, and then they did get lucky one day that they figured. Gosh, that's going to be the guy, and they were able to intercept him, and it did not end well for him. You know, he so he made he made an operational blunder that allowed uh, you know a particular computer to be connected to a particular login, and then that computer was connected to him, and uh, you know he ended wow. up with he's serving a life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. But it's not actually a life sentence. He actually got two life sentences, I think, plus five years, 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years, um, which adds up to an awful long time. From a purely technical sense, if
1: you don't accidentally log in using public technologies like Ulbricht did, and no one on your team of confidants or people rats on you, purely technically, if you do everything by the book and you don't slip up like this, Is it possible for you to get caught doing something like this? Clearly something had to happen in this case that someone slipped up somewhere or someone got a tip, right?
2: The thing you have to remember is that although in the virtual world there's this sort of veneer of anonymity around it, there are people on there ordering say illegal drugs from other people on there and having them shipped where they can pick them up Mm -hmm. so just like with trading in cryptocurrencies there's a point at which you have to take real money and convert it into cryptocurrency and Mm -hmm. we have to do the same the other way around so as soon as there is an interface between this is all happening virtually and oh, I, I actually do want to buy the illegal thing and have it actually shipped to me. Then there's a chance for if you like something to come out in the wash. And it could also happen that somebody makes a mistake. They accidentally log in one day without using Tor, for example, or they're mm. using a server that's doing two things at the same time. And it's pretty obvious that the same server that's serving, for example, so-called anonymous content if it's also serving genuine content and it's pretty obvious that the same physical server is involved and one has an IP address associated with it and the other is just known to be wherever the other one is then you don't have to find the anonymous one you only have to find the one that the one in if you might call real internet that's associated with it so it's very hard to be truly anonymous truly private and truly invisible online. The point is that if you're running a dark web server and somebody else is providing the server infrastructure for you, then there has to be an element of trust or honor among thieves, if you like, because it's probably not something that you're doing entirely by yourself. And any one of those people could either go rogue or decide that they don't like you'll want to hand you over or make a blunder that gives a little bit more information to law enforcement that help them helps them get a little bit more that helps them get a little bit more and you know eventually as you can see in a case like this law enforcement has some idea of what they're looking at and where it is but then actually doing something about it. That's super complicated as well, because as you can see in this case, there were several different jurisdictions involved, because there's an Australian citizen. He's in Germany, but what if he crosses the border into Denmark? He's running servers, which they're alleging, well, they're in Moldova and Ukraine. So you can't just walk in there if you're from a German policeman, can't just walk into those server rooms and grab the servers. So it's quite there's a lot of moving parts from law enforcement, even if they have a very good idea who's involved and where it's being done, getting enough evidence and getting all the right warrants and executing them at exactly the same time. It is, uh, you know, not an exercise to be entered into lightly.
1: And can you talk a little bit, you touch on it in the article about how
2: Tor actually anonymizes a connection? Basically, the the idea, I, I, I'm not going to talk about dot .onion sites because that's more complicated and it would take a little bit extra. So let's talk about, you're using the Tor browser to connect to a regular website on the regular internet so what you're using is you're using the Tor network if you like as a kind of super duper anonymizing proxy so you're visiting I'm connecting
1: because I want to listen to um take that (laughs) and but I don't want anyone to know that I'm listening to this band so I want to do it anonymously
2: Hmm. I was going to say that's an astonishingly good use case, but I don't think that would be fair to <laughs> anybody involved, particularly not to, to Kimberly, who probably listens openly. No, yeah. So let's say you want to you Publicly. want to visit a whistleblowing site, or you just think you know what I want to I want to browse to a, a site to look for products, and I just for once I just don't want to be tracked. So I want to go in as somebody else. Uh, the idea is that you you run the tour browser or the Tor components on your computer. And the browser doesn't connect directly to the internet. It connects to what's called a proxy, uh, a network connection listening locally on your computer. And what the Tor network does, it's called the Onion Router with good reason. It picks three, loosely speaking, randomly chosen computers from a pool of several thousand that are run around the world by volunteers. And then it takes the traffic that you want to send to the other end and it encrypts it, using public key cryptography, three times. To decrypt it, you would need three separate private keys for the three randomly chosen nodes in the Tor network. And that's why it's called the onion, because as it passes through those three nodes, which are chosen by your computer when it's connecting, so it can vary over time, which makes your traffic move around randomly, it also means that the computer you connect to to carry your traffic knows who you are. But when it strips its layer of encryption off, there's still two more layers of encryption. So it has no idea what you're saying or where you want to go in the end. It then goes to um, what you might call a middle node, which then it knows which node connected to it, but it has no idea where you are because that's one step away. And it has no idea where you want to go because when it strips off its layer of encryption, it just knows the last node in the chain. And the last node peels off the last layer of the onion. So if you're not using HTTPS and you're connecting to an insecure website, that final node known as the, 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 the exit node, that knows where your traffic is going. And if, if it's unencrypted, it can actually read what that traffic is. But it has no idea who you are or where the traffic came from. And indeed, it doesn't actually know how to get the traffic back to you. It just knows how to get the traffic to the node in the middle, which knows how to get it to what's called the entry guard or the entry point, and that knows how to get it back to you. So the idea is it is like a layer, an onioned layer of messages where each step in the chain strips off one layer of encryption so that it knows where to pass the message on to, but only the first node knows where the message started your computer only the last node knows where the message is going the server you want to visit and the node in the middle essentially keeps the entry and the exit nodes apart by using multiple layers of encryption and where each node along the way can only strip off one layer and not the next one that's the thing that provides you with a strong level of privacy and anonymity what it doesn't do is magically make you into somebody else In other words, if you use Tor to connect to a regular website and then you log in with your regular username and your regular password, although it might not be immediately obvious to anyone along the way who's doing it, so it does provide you with privacy from sort of marketing snoopiness along the way, if you identify yourself to the other end or if you go onto a dark website and you say, dear drug dealer, I live at 72 Acacia Avenue, please send the gear to that address on Tuesday afternoon, then you suddenly are not anonymous. So you're, the tour is about routing your network traffic and providing you with privacy and anonymity there, but it doesn't actually... It doesn't actually help you turn into somebody else and it doesn't give you that operational security if you blurt out who you are to the person at the other end.
0: Say I'm a person who visited this dark market um, uh, and my name is Doug. <laughs> uh, should I be sweating now, now that you're a poll's involved?
2: Oh, yes! Um, well, I suspect that anybody who had a... Well, as I put in the article, a more than tangential connection with the site probably is mm-hmm. a little bit worried, because if you think about it, as we said, Tor is the onion router, so it's the it's the it's the sending and the delivery of the network traffic. It's putting the initiator of the the client and the server together. That's the job of the Tor network. But once that server has been identified, if the servers are seized, then obviously. What law enforcement are now looking at uh, is one end of the conversation. So how it got there and the route it took suddenly becomes essentially irrelevant. The fact that that was disguised. You know, if you logged in and you used a particular username and that username is in some way connected with you or can be matched to you if... Something else should happen on your computer, or you come to the attention of the authorities for some other reason, then two and two can easily be put together. So the problem, the mm. thing with Tor is it doesn't protect or anonymize the data you choose to share with the other end once the other end has possession of it. So if they mm. choose to log all that data unencrypted in a giant database that gives away who you are or has telltale stuff that's enough to figure out who you are because of you know things you may injudiciously have said in online chat, for example, then yeah, you, you of course you can be traced in the same way that if you drop your identity document at the scene of a crime and the cops pick it up, then they're probably going to come around to your place. You might not be the guilty party, but it's a it's it's a reasonable inference from which to start investigating.
0: I think you have a really great breakdown in this article. You also have a video, What is the Dark Web? I would highly recommend people um, head on over to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and check out the article um, breaking down what the dark web is, both in the article and in the video. And this article is titled, Europol announces bust of world's biggest
1: dark web marketplace. Speaking of the web... This is, uh, we call this technology etymology. We look at a tech term and explain its origins. When we talk about web server technologies, we of course must mention the excellent and open source Apache software. Now, while the name itself is a respectful nod to the Native American tribe, it came to be because the technology began as a series of patches to the National Center for Supercomputer Applications or NCSA's web server. The end result was Apache server. The mm-hmm. server had many patches. It was
2: a Apache server. And the name stopped <laughs> Apache. Isn't that kind of fun? It is. It's with hindsight and a big marketing department. It might not be the name you choose now. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. On the other hand, not. the early competitor from Microsoft at the time, which had the, the gloriously inventive name, Internet Information Server, it doesn't have quite the same ring, does it?
1: No. No.
2: No. (laughs) Though you could argue it's more accurate. It's still not the one I'd choose.
1: Speaking of choice, we've got a nice little 20-minute mini-sode with Paul and the great Sally Adam, who wrote the article Homeschooling, How to Stay Secure.
2: Let's listen to a quick clip. So let's start at the beginning, because I know you went through this and explained it very well in the article. Most families won't have have a, a laptop for every child, particularly not if they're primary school kids. This business of setting up separate accounts for everybody, it seems like a pain, but it's absolutely vital, isn't it?
0: Yeah, that's really the foundation, um, enabling each child to have their own account. I mean, it has the advantages that then you can set up parental controls so that you're able to continue with your work on your account unrestricted. And it also enables you to set different levels of parental controls because your children's are different age, different things are things are appropriate. So yeah, that's really the the starting point.
1: That's available at nakedsecurity.sophos.com slash podcast or wherever fine podcasts are available for download. So Paul, let's zoom out a bit and turn our attention to general tips for staying safe at home. Plenty of people are still working from home and we can apply many of the same tips in Sally's article to digital life in general. So if we start, let's talk about shared devices.
2: Yes, that, that's a good point because I think a lot of people have seen that article. It's been very popular in the UK because you know, as you know, we're, we're in like full on lockdown. Certain, I think all parts of the UK are in full on lockdown at the moment. And with very short notice at the start of this year, the schools were going to reopen after the winter vacation and suddenly they didn't. And homeschooling was the big thing again. Uh, so I think, you know, if, if you're in the US, you say, oh, homeschooling, I don't have that in my town or municipality or state or whatever. The advice in the article really is about r- running your home network. Now, obviously, when homeschooling, it's 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 much more complicated because you've probably got – the it's a home network plus a work network plus a school network now. So the average person at home, as Sally found, suddenly they're – they're kind of like a sysadmin for a reasonably complex small business network all at home and so the the the, the first thing that she puts as advice it's like a, a sort of tip 1 and tip 2 kind of go together and that is the necessity of it, when you're sharing a device, which, you know, if you're homeschooling most families, you're, you're not, not going to be able to afford a laptop for, for every child in the household, particularly their primary school kids. And, you know, they might have one laptop that they have to use for everything. But it's really important not to cut corners by saying, oh, well, we'll just be careful and I'll create a load of separate directories. You need to go in when you're sharing devices and make sure that each person has their own individual login that you can secure with a separate password and importantly if you are letting kids use the device where it has its own set of parental controls because if you don't have multiple accounts then obviously any parental controls you set will apply to everybody who uses the device including the parents themselves so if you need to use the device for getting onto something like a work site then you're going to be locked down as strictly as your youngest. you would want your youngest child to be locked down. And it's not going to work. And the other problem with not taking the divide and conquer approach is even if you have two siblings of almost the same age, it's nice if they have their own separate accounts with their own separate files where even if they're looking out for each other, even if they're twins rather than siblings of a different age who are maybe fighting with each other, it's, it means that if one of them makes a blunder, it doesn't instantly and automatically affect everybody else who's using the device. So that's that, and that's important for everybody. You know, if you have a device that you need or wish to let somebody else use, particularly if it's one of your kids and you want to, you want to give them a, a different uh, configuration of what you might call ambient settings, then you need to have separate accounts. And the hassle of setting that up is very, very well worth it.
1: I can add some advice here too. We, my son, has been doing some whole homeschooling. They've been fortunate enough to be uh, in school in person for much of the year. But um, what I did is, I took, I had an old um, Windows laptop that I bought in probably 2015 or 16, and at the time, it was, it was powerful and light and thin, that, that kind of stuff. And I loaded. Um, chrome onto it i turned it into a chromebook so you can you can wipe the windows off of it and you can use it it's called cloud ready it's a neverware.com there's a free home version that lets you load um, the chrome operating system onto it so he's got his own kind of his own account his own setup on the computer i have an account on it too so two separate accounts but it's now a, a functional chromebook
2: that's a great idea of course not everybody wants to entrust their entire digital life to google which is one of the problems with the chromebook is it's you know it's it's it it, you're very much taking one path but if you do have an older laptop it may it's not entirely for the faint-hearted but it's much easier than most people think Mm -hmm. and it's worth giving it a try you could pick one of the popular easy to install linux distributions for example and install that and you'll find that On an older laptop, uh, there are some deliberately stripped-down versions of Linux that are specifically arranged where the the distribution and the build of the kernel are specifically organized to give you, if you like, the best performance on the oldest device.
1: And when we talk about passwords and password advice, it's a little trickier when we're dealing with younger kids, but for adults... Can, can we safely say, like, just use a password manager? That's, that's the easiest. It'll create a
2: complex password for you. It'll keep them all there. Sally and I discussed this issue of, you know, how hard is it for kids, particularly if they're primary school kids. And I think we, uh, without saying so, sort of came to the conclusion that the, the, the average young child should be able to do at least as good a job with passwords if they're not using a password even if they're not using a password manager than the average adult if you look at the sort of stuff that still makes it into those top 100 password lists that come out every year you know so adults are still choosing password secret one two three four one two three four five six one two three four five six seven eight nine and so on so you know it with a little bit of effort and a little bit of thought you can even get young kids to understand a why passwords are important a b how to mix them up a little bit so that they do remain personal and you know neither your friends nor your enemies are likely to guess what they are
1: and you should definitely like my parents and my in-laws do write all your passwords in a notebook and then keep that (laughs) notebook in your laptop bag right next to your laptop so if it ever gets stolen Whoever's fortunate enough to get a hold
2: of it will have all your passwords. Well, it's interesting that in in, in the article that Sally wrote and, and in the mini episode of the podcast, we discussed that very issue of writing down passwords. And our recommendation is actually, particularly for your kids' passwords, that you do write them down. Because that way, if they forget them and, you know, Monday morning's coming and it's back to school, you you know, you don't have this crisis trying to do password resets, but don't write them on a post-it note and leave it stuck on the laptop. Don't put it in the laptop bag where it be stolen at the same time. Lock it away somewhere. And by the way, the other problem that uh, we, we, we had some questions about this on Naked Security uh, last week from readers. We've seen cases in the UK, you know, homeschooling suddenly being reintroduced at very short notice. Schools saying, oh, you need to use this app, where schools said, don't worry, we'll set up the account for you. And then they pick the same password for every child in the class. And of course, that oh. just leads to terrible heartache because you don't have to worry about the crooks getting hold of it. As soon as the kids figure out, look at that password and go, that looks pretty generic. Even if they don't know mm. what the word generic means, they're smart enough to figure out, I bet you all my buddies have got the same password. And as soon yep. as somebody tries it out and the secret's out of the bag, then you know that's when bad things start happening. So if you do get a password that's set up for you, it's vital that you change it from the default.
1: The article itself, we talk more about device security, patch early, patch often. we talk about privacy settings in browsers and devices. We t- there's a whole separate article on home Wi-Fi tips. So we'll direct people over to that article or to the mini The article itself is called Homeschooling, How to Stay Secure. That's at nakedsecurity.sophos.com.
0: So this next story that we're doing, we actually didn't write an article about this, but we want to talk a little bit about it. Um, If you have been paying attention to some, you know, Facebook news, um, Facebook Incorporated and Facebook Ireland have filed a legal action in Portugal against two people for scraping user profiles and other data from Facebook's website. Um, apparently, this business name, uh, called Oink and Stuff. I'm not gonna lie, that's a very cute name that would have also tried to. <laughs> that name that's would have also what got lured my me attention
2: in. for that story. Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> it's just, it's a little almost a throwaway article on on Facebook's blog, isn't it? And I just oink and it stuff is. like that sounds cool, oink and but stuff then when you, so when, cute. You, when you think, oh, well, you, you think. Well, Facebook are all about collecting data. Why would they bother what a browser extension does? But when you read between the lines in that that short blog post, it, it it's a big reminder that what companies like this, this Oink and stuff, and I couldn't find out much about them other than that they're rather weird. Uh, anyone who's installed their software is giving them an awful lot of authority over their data.
0: Yeah, let's rewind for a second. So basically, the the business Oink and Stuff um, is run by these two <laughs> I can't guys. i so, laughing,
2: but it's not a funny company. It's, they sound quite.
0: It's quite very cute. Guys. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, uh, they really thought they really thought about their marketing. Oink uh, and Stuff and uh,
1: Ninja Lab from last week. We had some two <laughs> right? cool.
0: We had some good names mm-hmm. here. Um, I shouldn't laugh, but apparently they developed browser extensions and they put them up in the Chrome Store and misled a bunch of people into installing these. In- Uh, extensions with a privacy policy that claimed they did not collect any personal information. However, four of their extensions, uh, web for Instagram plus DM, blue messenger, emoji keyboard, and green messenger were malicious and contained hidden computer code that functioned like spyware. So while they sound cute, they were obviously doing not so cute things. I'm curious to know the numbers here. The article doesn't give a whole lot of information as to who was affected um, and the numbers of people affected, but I can see kids. I can see um, (laughs) basic people like me being like, ooh, oink and stuff. What is that? Um, I would never download this because I'm too paranoid and I've worked in this industry for too long, but I can see people being lured in by this stuff. And then if you Google Oink and stuff. You go to the website, and it's the website's kind of cute too. It's very vague, it but definitely looks cute.
2: When you look at the website, there are these bold claims. Oh, it it saves up to fifty percent in CPU, stroke, memory, stroke, internet bandwidth. Big, wide-eyed, smiley face, happy emoji, um, amazed emoji available for Windows, Mac, and Linux. And you're right; it's a cute-looking website. It's got all the right sort of mixture of pastel and primary colors it supports all the browsers and they sell a whole load of weird stuff as well you can buy a hundred <laughs> multi-colored uh elastic hairbands for six pounds 32 you can add a, a a little harness that you put on that's supposed to correct your posture and remove pain in your back and and silk sleeping masks as well as browser <laughs> extensions who would have thought all the things i <laughs> need yep the problem is that when you look at this site, in my opinion, without, you know, without having analyzed their code, the alarm bell should be going off because it's kind of like they're trying to be all things to all people in all browsers. And the problem with a browser extension, it's not like a room that opens out off the back of your property uh, that you know adds a playroom or a place where you can play snooker or pool or something like that. A browser extension actually sits right inside your browser And it pretty much, it sees the content that's served back at you by a server. The extension gets to see who you are, where you go, what you typed in on every page, what you sent, what you received. And even worse, I mean, by design, a browser extension can't just sniff out everything you're doing in your browser outside the encrypted part. It can also modify what goes out before it gets sent, and it can modify what comes back before you see it. And of course, if it's a password manager, trusted password manager browser plugin, that's great because it can fill in passwords in forms and send them for you so you don't have to. On the other hand, if it has your worst interests at heart, then it can look at what you've just typed into a password form and sneakily send it off to somebody else.
0: This whole thing got me thinking about just like extension, the Chrome store, and like how... How are users protected from bad extensions being put in the Chrome Store? Um, is there a security uh, check that uh, that developers have to go through? Like, how did this wind up in the Chrome Store? And I know the article doesn't really mention this information, but I'm you know theorizing here. Like, how
2: does this happen? Kimberly, I think it's exactly the same way that malware gets into somewhere like the Google Play Store. Uh, Mm. And we spoke about that in respect of the homeschooling advice article. We advise you stick to Google Play if you've got Android, if you can, because it's far from perfect. Whatever Google might tell you, malware gets in there perhaps more often than you might be comfortable with. But at least there is some curation. But the thing that people forget is that something like Google Play and the Chrome Store, it's not like they're getting a few hundred apps a year from a few dozen developers who have a a close, signed, super trustworthy relationship with Google where, you know, the, the code gets carefully reviewed. The idea is that to be fair that the play store and google and the chrome store they're supposed to be kind of a big enabler they're supposed to be open to people all over the world not a a super exclusive club and therefore there isn't time to review all the code absolutely so there are automatic tools that catch out a lot of the bad stuff that gets in there but there's There's such value to cyber criminals in being able to sneak malware into something like the Play Store or the Chrome Store or Apple's App Store that they're willing to put in huge amounts of effort to try, you know, well, let's change this code. Let's try that. Let's use this technique. Let's not do that. Let's use a different web server. Let's write the code a little bit. Oh, look, we got in now we can serve ads that we're not supposed to now we can ask for money that we're not supposed to until they get spotted and shut down and kicked out so unfortunately for by making this you know kind of a place where where even indie developers can actually come and play if they want to play by the rules unfortunately attracts people who are willing to try and bend those rules deliberately just as far as they can in order to do bad stuff until they get caught out and then they go away and rethink and come back and try and try again so the problem is that once you've convinced somebody for example by a cool looking site with all the right sort of colors and all the right sort of promises uh once you've convinced them to install the extension under the premise that it does x or y or z then there are almost certainly going to be permissions that the the user who's already decided to trust the extension feels they need to grant the app or the extension And the classic example is, well, why does this app want access to my camera and my microphone? Well, it's a messaging app that lets you do video calling, for example. And it's absolutely unsurprising. In fact, it it just wouldn't work if you had a, a voice or a video messaging app that didn't have access to your camera. So it's fairly easy. Once you've got someone to believe that you're a legitimate company with your best interest at heart that can improve your browsing experience provided that you grant it permissions a b and c once you've crossed that bridge then when it asks you for those permissions you're very likely to give them willingly you know that's that's the sort of that's the way any sort of contract trick works isn't it you get the person to trust you and then when you ask a difficult question that if you'd asked up front they'd never have said yes they go ah yes i trust you sure So that is a, you know, to be fair to the Googles and the Apples of the world, that is a difficult problem to solve whilst having a marketplace that can attract lots of developers and lots of different apps, you know, to give people the choice that they want. Although one wonders just how many blue messenger programs the world might need. (laughs) And to be fair to Facebook, you know, they've, they've copped a lot of flack lately over this whole WhatsApp policy change, haven't they? That they they want to make WhatsApp kind of friendlier to businesses who come online by maybe sharing more of your data than they thought. And now they've backed off and said, OK, we hear, that, we hear that you're uneasy about that. So they've got a three-month moratorium while they think about what they're going to do. So it's easy to be cynical about Facebook and say, well, it's ridiculous. Facebook, of all companies, going after this little company, it's kind of unfair. But I'm in favor of this kind of activity we've seen we've seen Microsoft and other companies do this as well. Uh, is that they're basically saying it's really hard to deal with people who are writing dubious code and distributing it. It's really hard to deal with them through through the criminal courts because you know by the by the time we can get to the level where we've got a warrant identified them and figured them like in the talking about the complexity of that dark web bust it's kind of too late. So you know companies like facebook and microsoft and others are saying well let's use civil remedies where we say these people are cheating our users and we're going to go to court to kind of get them to stop which a will get them to stop at least with some of the apps and will also let's hope raise awareness of the fact that there are people who are who are writing things like browser extensions and they might be claiming, hey, this will make your browsing 50% faster and reduce your memory pressure and, and you know make your computer faster and all of that. Whereas in fact, maybe what they really want to do is do some underhand marketing that you definitely didn't expect and definitely wasn't covered in the privacy policy. Because I tried to find out something about Oink and stuff. And I went to their, They have a privacy policy. And they have this extensive terms and conditions document. And it has some fantastic stuff in there. Um, if you bother to read carefully. And I suggest that if you do read, you wouldn't trust them. Because uh, let me find this bit. It says, how we protect visitor info, capital letters. You know, every privacy policy. It has something about you know how seriously we take your security. And they make the two points we do not use vulnerability scanning and or scanning to PCI standards. It's admitting, how do we protect your data? We don't. And then the second point says <laughs> we do not use malware scanning. So at least they're being honest. And then further on, governing law, obviously in your privacy policy, you have to say, like, if you have a beef with them, where would you go and find them? And I couldn't find where this company was based. They've got... They're, they're, when you look at their who is record, it's got one of those privacy protections. So that that's done by a, a company Whois Guard, who is Guard, who's based in Panama. If you look up their server IP number, it's a uh, one of those cloud based, a digital ocean server that's based in Singapore. Uh, if you look them up on Twitter, they claim to be based in Myanmar, uh, Burma. Um, their, their online shop is is run by by Shopify, and you know so. And yet Facebook's taking out this lawsuit in portugal and so i thought well i wonder where they really are and they're called oink and stuff limited which is that the, the come like in the us they'd be llc if they were in singapore they'd be pte limited in somewhere like australia or south africa they'd be pty limited in the uk they might be ltd i don't know what a what a myanmar company would be like but i did find out that it that uh, when it comes to their governing law it says these terms and conditions shall be governed by and construed in accordance with the laws of space character Period.
0: Space, the final frontier.
2: No, no, that's space as in space <laughs> bar. <bath.
0: laughs> no, I I picture space as an outer
2: space. <laughs> no, no, no. This is inner space. The laws of outer space. They bought a plot on the moon, and that's where they set up shop. <laughs>
0: that's where they're operating. The bottom line,
2: folks, is if you're going to invite a browser extension in, do go and read things like the privacy policy and the terms and conditions. In this case, if you did a little bit of what you might call due diligence, like me, you would probably be. Thinking, you know what? These people may be lovely people, but because I have absolutely no idea who they are, and they're not making it easy for me to find out, then I'm definitely not going to invite them into the heart of my browser.
0: Already, folks, it's that time. Uh oh. No, 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 not the uh oh. It's the oh
2: no. Oh. Of the week. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs>
0: The owner of the week, oh, guys, this made me laugh. Just stick with me for this one. Excellent Currency 58 writes, My brother-in-law works as an electrician for a shipyard in Nova Scotia. The yard had rented a crane, but it was giving the operator some trouble and soon stopped working altogether. In desperation, they called the crane rental company for support, and the crane company flew a technician in from Ontario to fix the problem. Trevor loves gadgets, so he went to meet the technician to see what the problem might be. The technician was stumped and had to spend hours on the crane trying to get it to work. Quoting the IT crowd as a joke, Trevor asked the technician, Have you tried turning it off and on again? They tried it. That fixed the problem. The (laughs) end.
1: (laughs) That's the first thing you should do.
0: (laughs) So the lesson here, folks, is... Reboot it. Just r- turn it off and turn it back on again, and that usually applies to apparently everything in the universe. So, yeah,
1: there you go. You're welcome. I had my own repair business when I was in my uh, early to mid twenties, and one of my
0: Doug, what haven't you done? I feel like every time <laughs> we computer record, repair, you're or like
1: crane repair, <laughs> computer <laughs> like repair. I should have done crane. Most interesting man repair. in the world. One one of my buddies was like, "All, all you really do is." Is uh, just you turn the computer off and back on, right? And I was like, "Well, it's a little more complicated than that." But yes, basically, yes, that's what that's what it is. And and vacuum
2: out all the dust that used to gum up the fan. Yeah, I do
1: have now. I don't know. I don't think I'll be able to keep this up. But last week I had a mini. Oh no, I have a mini. Oh no, for this week too. Ooh, if you'd like to hear it. So I'm on this discussion chain. It's it's on WhatsApp. uh, Speak of the devil. You don't care about your privacy, Doug. Uh, there's some of us are doctors and some of us are security experts, some of us are in the finance fields. So we had this vibrant discussion. It was uh, equal parts cryptocurrencies and the coronavirus vaccine. So we're talking back and forth and one of these one of the guys kind of disappears for a couple days. And he comes back, he basically laments that he missed this great discussion and he writes, "My internet stopped working and to fix it, the provider told me to unplug the coaxial cable from both the modem and the wall." And switch the direction. What? Which, of course, had no chance of fixing it and did not. Frustrating. Can you imagine calling
2: Comcast or like unplug it and then switch the plug
1: around and plug it back in? That's what they told him to do.
2: You know, it's amazing. I, you were- <laughs> I bet you that works a lot because by disconnecting it, and then making the person turn it round, you're probably, like, if it, if it wasn't connected properly, because you're, like, completely redoing it, like, you can't cheat then, right? You sort of I semi-take off was, one this, end and plug it straight back. Yeah,
1: this guy was just trying to get him off the phone. He's like, tell you what, yeah, turn the cable around. Uh, <laughs> give us a call back. And, of course, you're never going to get this
2: tech back on the phone because you can never get back <laughs> to the same person. Maybe next Aww. week's Oh No, there'll be a something from from coaxial technician 99 on Reddit. <laughs> like, He'll go, hey, guess idiots what? It does I work. told this guy to turn the <laughs> cable around. <laughs> yeah.
0: If you enjoyed this oh no, you can submit your own oh no to us. You can email us tips at sophos.com or you can send us a DM on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook or you can leave us an anonymous comment on nakedsecurity.sophos.com on any of our articles duck is constantly reading the comments so you can leave them there um and of course if you enjoyed this podcast you can leave us a five-star review i'm not begging but you can do that it's a thing you can do in fact i'm gonna read a new five-star review that just came in um, from craig s92 he says informative and fun I've subscribed to many IT and security podcasts and find many too long and dry to keep me engaged. The Naked Security Podcast content has always been on point, and the hosts are always entertaining. Why, thank you, Craig. Fun-formative. It's fun-formative. It's one of the few I listen to as soon as it's published. Craig! Thanks,
1: Craig. Yeah, thank you. Craig, That's very, thank you
0: so much, Craig. Yeah. love your
1: kind words. Switch those cables around and let us know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like i said you can leave us a review heck i may even just read it on this podcast so go ahead leave us a review until next time stay stay secure. Secure.
1: he's more of a cicada man sounds like